0: I'm so grateful for our music team and uh, all their hard work that they put in every week to serve us so well, so thank you very much. And uh, I want you to take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Romans this morning, and what we're about to read and study may not, on the surface, appear like a very Christmassy message, but when it all comes down to it, the whole point of Christmas is God sending a Savior for sin. And so I hope we'll see the the natural connection um, to the season that we're celebrating. And um, the more we understand the greatness of our sin, the more we'll appreciate the greatness of our Savior. And so let's read this together. Romans chapter 7 Verses 7 to 13, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead." I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died, and this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me, for sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Father, we said last week that Paul, being the brilliant man that he was, wrote some things that were difficult to understand. And this is one of those things. This particular text is a tightly wound argument about the law and sin and death. And I pray, Lord, that you would enable us by your spirit to understand what this passage means and how it applies to our lives. And so use me as the preacher this morning to make your word understandable and applicable and cause the hearers to be receptive and responsive to your word. Lord, so that we could be uh, all that you want us to be, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, my title for today's message is borrowed from a compelling and convicting little book written back in 1669 by a Puritan pastor from England named Ralph Venning. Um, the book was published four years after the Great Plague in London, or of London, which was the last major epidemic of the bubonic plague to occur in England. And it, in just 18 months, killed an estimated 100,000 people, which was a, about a quarter of London's population at the time. The book was originally titled, Sin, the Plague of Plagues, and was meant to serve as spiritual medicine for the greatest plague of all, and that is sin, which could be likened to a fatal epidemic that has infected all mankind and threatens to kill all of us. And so Venning's aim in his book, The Sinfulness of Sin, as it was ultimately Named was to powerfully explain and practically apply the expression that we just read in Romans 7 13 that sin is utterly sinful. So the people would hate it and flee from it. Now, in my opinion, few preachers and authors today would, either, would ever dare to speak and write so clearly and so comprehensively on what the Bible teaches about sin. And even fewer Christians today have a desire to listen to a message or to read a book about the nature of sin. I've never read the book myself, but after skimming through it this week, I can confidently say that anyone who reads this book will never think the same about sin again. In fact, my... Copy is on its way through Amazon Prime right now. Somewhere in the midst of all the other Christmas stuff that's coming, I bought myself a Christmas present: Ralph Venning's book, *The Sinfulness of Sin*. I, I got to read this thing. Skimming was not enough. I got to get into this thing and actually read it. But just to give you a, a, a taste for Venning's passion, his heart in this book, just, let me just read you a portion of the introduction. Benning writes, it cannot but be extremely useful to let men see what sin is, how prodigiously vile, how deadly mischievous, and therefore how monstrously ugly and odious a thing sin is. Are you intrigued yet? He says, if we look on this through the microscope glass of the law, it will appear a most hideous, devilish, and hellish thing, the most wicked, mischievous virulent, villainous, and deadly thing that ever was. It's as if he's trying to find any word he could possibly find to talk about how evil sin is. He said, sin is high treason against God. It attempts nothing less than the the, the dethroning and ungodding of God himself. It has unmanned man, made him a fool, a beast, a devil, and subjected him to the wrath of God and made him liable to eternal damnation. It has put the Lord of life to death and shamefully crucified the Lord of glory. Sin is always resisting the Holy Ghost. It is continually practicing the defiling, the dishonor, the deceiving, and the destruction of all men. It is impossible to speak worse of sin than it really is, or even as badly of it as it really deserves, for it is hyperbolically sinful. In other words, hyperbole, it's an exaggeration. He says, there are not enough words. We need more and stronger ones to speak of its vileness. And if we were to say that it is worse than, worse than death and the devil, the very hell of hell, this would not be to rail at it, but tell it only the truth about itself. Sin is the quintessence of evil. It has made all the evils that are, that are and it is itself worse than all the evils that is made. It is not only ugly, but ugliness, not only filthy, but filthiness, not only abominable, but abomination. All this and much more may be said of and against sin. Amazon Prime, nine bucks, worth every cent. Well, this morning, we have the opportunity to examine Sin under what Venning called the microscope glass of the law. We've all looked through a microscope at some point, right, in chemistry class back in high school. We know a chemistry is an optical instrument designed to magnify objects like mineral samples or plant or animal cells. Um, that you can't see with the naked eye, and, and that microscope will magnify it several hundred times so you can see them for what they really are. In a similar way, the law is a spiritual instrument that was designed by God to magnify sin so we could see it for what it really is. In fact, if it wasn't for the law... We would never see our sin, let alone know that sin even existed. The concept of sin itself makes no sense apart from the law, which states God's righteous standard of sinless perfection. How can you know what sin is if you don't know what sinless perfection is? Maybe we could understand it this way, that there would be no such thing as a crime If there was not an established list of laws that differentiated right from wrong. So all that to say, sin exists because the law exists, and the law exists to show us how sinful we really are. According to 1 John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness. That's the simplest definition of sin in the entire Bible. Sin is lawlessness. In other words... Sin can be defined as breaking the laws that God has established for us to follow. And to summarize the laws, we could maybe just have in our minds the Ten Commandments. And we know in His famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus took the Ten Commandments to a whole new level to show how The law was intended to reveal that sin goes beyond our external words and our actions, but it also affects our internal desires and attitudes and motives. In other words, the law reveals that our lives are riddled with sin. We are totally depraved, as theologians like to say, or utterly and completely sinful inside and out. And so in today's text, Paul explained the true nature of the law, and in doing so, he exposed the true nature of sin, which was the purpose of the law to begin with. But what's so, I guess, tricky about this passage is that the law and sin are closely intertwined, and Paul carefully untangled them here and clarified the relationship between the two, between law and sin, and particularly how they both relate to death. So simply stated, sin used the law to bring death. Sin used the law to bring death. Now, if you remember from last week, Paul's aim in this chapter, chapter 7, was to answer the objections that he anticipated his Jewish readers might have to all the negative things that he has said about the law in the first six chapters. Not to mention what he just said in the first six verses of chapter 7 where he explained how we have been released from trying to keep God's law to make us right and to keep us right with God and how we have been remarried to Christ who we gladly and willingly honor and serve out of great love and gratitude for rescuing us from our fearful, awful, slavish existence with our old husband who who demanded the impossible from us. Verse four, if you look back there, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. And so we're talking about how we've been released from the law to be joined to Christ. And Paul made it clear that the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us and empowers us to honor and obey our new husband, not because we have to, but because we, what? Want to, verse six. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. And again, we said last week that freedom from the law is actually freedom to fulfill the law with new motives and with new means. The new motive is love, Not fear, and the new means is not in our own strength, but in the strength of the Holy Spirit. Well, based on what Paul said there in verses 1 through 6, which we covered last week, about us no longer being bound to the law and no longer being bound to death, he knew that there would be some who would naturally have questions then about the purpose of the law. For instance, what what good... Is the law, if it doesn't save us, and if we're no longer bound to it? What good is it? In fact, you, Paul, you make it sound like the law is a bad thing that leads to our death. And so Paul didn't want anyone to consider him to be an antinomian, an anti-law guy, or to conclude that the law is a bad thing, or worse, that it is sin, and or it is the cause of our death. And so the main point of verses 7 through 13 is, is to prove that God's law is a good thing. And sin is a bad thing. And it's not the law that causes death, it's sin that leads to death. And so in verses 7 through 13, Paul was, was going to bat for the law. And he did that by describing the, the, the vital role the law played in his own life, which is representative of of all of our lives. Paul's story is our story. One commentator said it this way: Paul tells his story to make the point that whenever and wherever God's perfect standards come into contact with sinful human beings, and that's so far so good, right? That's us. God's perfect standard and with, it comes in contact with us, a sinful human being. Two things happen: God's commandment exposes sin as utterly sinful, and sin proves its utter sinfulness by exploiting the good law to stir us up to sin more. We'll see that unfold more as we look at these verses, but the way I'd like us to consider these verses is simply this, that in order to defend the goodness of the law, Paul described four functions of the law that demonstrate the grossness of our sin. So we've got the goodness of the law and the grossness of our sin. What are these four functions? Well, the law publicizes sin, the law provokes sin, the law punishes sin, and finally the law proves how bad sin is. Let's look at these Four functions of the law one at a time. Number one, the law publicizes sin. Verse seven, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Paul has just gotten done in verse five talking about how sin... Or our flesh, our sinful passions, are aroused by the law. And he wants us to understand that just because the law arouses sin in us doesn't mean it is sin. May it never be. No way. Of course not. It's outrageous. It's blasphemous to suggest that anything that came from a holy God could be less than perfect, let alone evil or sinful. He says, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. He's already said this back in chapter 3, verse 20. He said, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Again, Paul was describing his own personal testimony here of how God used his perfect law to reveal his imperfections or his unrighteousness. And again, sin, I think, can be simply defined as failing to measure up to God's holy and righteous standards. Jesus said that we are to be perfect, right, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Anybody get there yet? Anybody close to being perfect yet? Yeah, that's the point. It's impossible, humanly impossible, to measure up to God's perfect or standard of perfection. The Apostle James, as I'm sure you're familiar with, Uh, explained how the perfect law of liberty, I love that, he called the the Bible or the Word of God the perfect law of liberty. It acts like a mirror that shows us our sin and how far we fall short of the the demands that God has placed on it. You can see that in James chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. It's as if whenever we pick up the Word of God, it's as if we're looking into a mirror, we're staring at it, and it's showing us all of our imperfections, all the things that we need to change to be more pleasing to Him. But notice he gets more specific in verse 7. He says, For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. And here Paul uh, quoted the 10th commandment from Exodus 20, 17, Deuteronomy 5, 21, and and implied that, that this was the specific command or the specific part of the law that God used to reveal his sin. I mean, he could have he could have quoted any of the Ten Commandments, but he chose the the tenth commandment. Why? I think it's because all the other commandments addressed external sins that you can see or hear—lying, adultery, um, dishonoring of parents, um, idolatry. Whereas the tenth commandment addresses internal sin that you can't see. This is the commandment that addresses the heart. You shall not covet. And so, really, the, the tenth commandment, or the heart, is the spring from which every other sin flows. So consequently, keeping the tenth commandment is the key to keeping the rest of the commandments. Or conversely, breaking the tenth commandment will inevitably lead to breaking all the other commandments. Why? Because when you covet something... That belongs to someone else. In other words, you want what someone else has. You'll be tempted to dishonor them or kill them or commit adultery against them or steal from them or slander them or lie to them or do whatever it takes to get what you want from them. So the sin of coveting is really the first step that we take toward all these other sins. And it starts where? In the heart. Before we ever see sin, right? Sin is hidden in our heart. In fact, the world was led into sin as a result of coveting. Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, desired more than what God had so generously provided. He gave them everything except what? One tree. But that wasn't enough. They had to have that one tree too. And really what they wanted was not the tree. They wanted what Satan said they would get if they ate from the tree, and that is the knowledge of good and evil. That's what they really wanted. They wanted to be like God. And Satan got them to believe that God was holding out on them, and ultimately they blamed God for their sin. Most theologians agree that... The tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, is the most forceful commandment of all because it undeniably proves man's inability to keep God's law perfectly. Because even those of us who may appear to outwardly conform to the law, we have to admit that we have harbored covetous desires in our hearts In other words, no matter how good you may appear on the outside, we all have wicked thoughts and desires on the inside. And up until his conversion on the Damascus Road, Paul thought that he was a pretty good guy. Not just a pretty good guy, a really good guy. Not just a really good guy, a blameless guy. He thought he measured up to God's perfect standard. Remember his testimony in Philippians chapter three, verse five, that he, "I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found." Remember what he say? Blameless. And as one commentator said so well, Although Paul may not have committed any of the grossest, more revolting sins, he now realized that his thought life was corrupt. He understood that evil thoughts are sinful as well as evil deeds. He had a polluted thought life. He had a polluted mind. His outward life may have been relatively blameless, but his inward life was a chamber of horrors. Which, by the way, is true of all of our Hearts. Our hearts are a chamber of horrors. And it's the law that publicizes that, or reveals that, or exposes that. Secondly, the law provokes sin. The law doesn't just publicize sin, it provokes sin. Look at verse 8. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. That word opportunity, there, where he says for sin taking opportunity, was used to describe a starting point or a base of operations for an expedition. In other words, sin, which is already in our hearts uses the law as a beachhead to launch its evil work in our lives. And when we're made aware of of what God forbids, our sin nature is instantly inflamed to do whatever God has told us not to do. Have you ever noticed that? By prohibiting something, the law is actually provoking us to do it. The law stirs up evil desires and impulses within us? Someone said it this way, it's no secret that man has a natural rebellious streak that causes him almost reflexively to resent a command or prohibition. When people notice a sign that reads, keep off the grass or don't pick the flowers, for instance, there is often an impulse to do the very thing the sign forbids. I'm sure all of us could think of examples uh, of that uh, in our lives, right, that we really weren't thinking much about a particular thing, but as soon as we saw, you know, a no trespassing sign, it made us curious, or, or you know, you get a letter, and, and some, a letter from somebody else, and, or for, addressed to somebody else, and it's just a letter, no big deal, but it says, when you get a letter, it says confidential. You know, it's like, ooh, private, Ooh, I might want to check this one out, right? Well, what is that going on there? Well, ever since Adam and Eve, human beings have always been enticed by forbidden fruit. Proverbs 9 17. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Something about stolen water it tastes a little sweeter than the stuff I could have got, you know, in my own house. Um, Venning writes this in, in his book, The Sinfulness of Sin. He says, however sweet the stolen waters of sin seem to be in the mouth and to the taste, they will be gall and wormwood in the belly, bitterness in the latter end. We've all experienced that. Sin tastes really good going down. But oftentimes it makes us sick to our stomachs. And in some cases, we end up puking it right back out. This morning, I walked out of our bedroom early to address the dogs. We have three dogs in our house, two of our own, one grand dog that we care for because she's too fat. She didn't make the the weight limit to, to live in Zach's apartment. So she's living with us we're, we're, we got her on a diet plan. We're trying to bring her down. But uh, anyway, she um, she has a propensity to steal stuff off the counters, food in particular. So the other ones are too short. They can't even reach the counter. They can't even see the counter. This one, she's, she's big enough. She can get up on the counter and she can see what's up there. And she's often stealing food off the counters. And so we have to just make sure there's no food on the counters. Well, last night I came home for the elder retreat and I walked in the house and and uh, I couldn't find our littlest one, and I saw the other ones, they met me at the door, this little one, um, where is she? I couldn't find her, I was calling for it. And then I find her over in her bed, licking a stick of butter in the wrapper. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, shorty, I know you didn't get that off the counter. And I looked at Maya, the big one, the only one who could reach it, and I knew that she had probably got that down, and somehow the little one stole it, and I wondered, okay how many of these sticks of butter were there? I didn't know Kelly was getting to put them out for baking, right? And uh, so I didn't know if we were dealing with one stick of butter. Was this the only one? Was there more sticks of butter? I couldn't find any other sticks of butter in the house. I thought, well, we'll, we'll find out, right? Well, I found out this morning there was another stick of butter. And, uh, and so I walked out, and I, again, the dogs were kind of acting weird, and I came around the corner, and there's Maya sitting on the carpet by our front door next to a big pile of throw-ups. And she doesn't just throw up. I mean, she throws up. I mean, it's like you have to sterilize the whole house when it's over. I mean, and so I was like, oh, man, this is the last thing I want to deal with this morning, seven o'clock, Sunday morning. I'm still working through my message in my mind, and I'm I'm like, okay, great. So I walk over there, and guess what's right smack dab in the middle of that pile of throw-up? A stick of butter with the wrapper. And... Obviously, it was a revolting scene, and all of us, you know, right, have seen a dog throw up. We've had to clean it up. What's even more revolting is when a dog goes back to their vomit and eats it themselves, right? I mean, that's revolting. Okay, we're talking about the sinfulness of sin. The point is, you think of the most revolting thing that you can conjure up in your mind, and it doesn't even come close to how revolting sin is. but I'm sure that butter tasted really good going down to our dog, right? But she paid the price for it this morning. And that's true of all of us, isn't it? Notice he says, for apart from the law, sin is debt. Seems like a strange statement there. It's not that sin does not exist apart from the law. It does. Long before the law appeared, sin entered the world through Adam and spread to all men. We know that from our study of chapter 5, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, justice through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. So there's always been sin. I think what Paul's saying here is what, that when the law finally came and began naming certain things sin, like coveting, for example, it stirred up the innate desire for sin that was lying dormant in us. And so Paul's testimony was that before the law accomplished its convicting work in his life, and we don't know exactly when that was, sometime before he came to Christ on the Damascus Road, it could have been while he was struck off of his horse, onto the ground, blinded. It could have been during that moment in time. We're not sure. But what he's saying here is that it's as if sin was inactive within him, but the law activated or aggravated sin in his life. I love the classic illustration in Pilgrim's progress of this dynamic. Um, If you remember, Pilgrim goes to the interpreter's house and he goes into one room in the interpreter's house, and again, Bunyan is, John Bunyan who wrote this, is, is teaching all these biblical principles uh, through the analogy of this house, and, and you walk into one room, and Pilgrim walks into this one room, and there's dust everywhere in this room, like an inch of dust on the floor. And so he, 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 he sees somebody come in with a broom to try to sweep up that that dust, and, and, and it makes everything worse because it just stirs up the dust, and the dust is flying all over the place. Now, it's not just on the floor, it's in the air, and it's on them. And and, and, and he's like, hey, hey, time out. Stop the, stop the sweeping thing here. You're just aggravating. You're stirring up the dust. And so the picture is dust is sin, the sin in our lives, and, and the broom is the law. And you get the law going in our lives, and it just stirs up sin. And then You remember what comes, how did they solve the dust problem? Somebody came in with some water and threw it on the dust and it all calmed down and went away. And they were able to sweep it up, right? And that water represents the gospel. And so the law not only publicizes sin, the law provokes sin. But then thirdly, notice the law punishes sin. Verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me, for sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. Now, again, a strange statement, apart from the law, Paul, you were, you were raised In a Jewish home, you were a a zealous Pharisee. There was never a time in Paul's life before his conversion when he was unaware or unrelated to the law, but relatively speaking, before he was convicted by the law, he was blissfully ignorant of the pit of iniquity that was in, in, in his heart. Right? We say ignorance is bliss, but... When the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. In other words, the principle of sin within me made its presence and its power known. It it sprang into life. And the more I tried to obey the law, the worse I failed. And Paul realized that he was spiritually dead in his trespasses and sins and that all of his religious credentials and, and spiritual accomplishments were rubbish, scubalon, poop literally, in the Greek, okay? He was totally incapable of achieving salvation by his own human effort. And he said this commandment, which which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. And what he was saying there is that that when God gave the law, he promised life to those who kept it. Leviticus 18.5, God promises life to anyone who keeps the law. And so theoretically, perfect obedience to the law would result in eternal life. But no one has perfectly kept the law except who? Jesus. Therefore, since all of us are guilty of breaking the law, we deserve to be punished or condemned to die and experience God's wrath in hell. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul that sins must die. Uh, back in chapter 4 of Romans, verse 15, for the law brings about wrath. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And it's not just talking about we get old and we die, but we are eternally separated from God in hell. That is the punishment for sin. Notice the last phrase there in Well, verse 11, for sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Sin had led Paul to believe that he could earn eternal life by keeping the law. Sin deceived him into thinking that that he was acceptable to God based on his own merit, based on his own good works. And I think this is helpful for us to remember based on what he said here, for sin deceive me. Sin works by deception. It tricks us. As another Puritan said in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. I don't know where these Puritans came up with these titles, but Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. He said that, that, that sin and temptation, they, they, they present the bait, but they hide the hook. Those of you that are fishermen, you get that, right? You you want the fish to see the bait, not the hook, but you're putting that thing on there. You're hiding that hook up. That's the deception. All you fishermen are much of a deceivers. You're deceptive. You're you're trying to trick these fish. You're trying to deceive these fish, right? I'm joking, right? But you are. You're trying to trick the fish. You're trying to deceive the fish into thinking he's getting, uh, you know, This, something, but he's really going to get the hook. And instead of him getting dinner, you're getting dinner, right? It's a trick. Fishing is just a big old trick. And so is sin. Sin promises to make us happy and to bring us pleasure. But what does it deliver? It makes us sad and it brings us pain. Sin promises that we'll get away with it but then sin finds us out, doesn't it? We eventually get caught and have to deal with the consequences of our sin. The language that Paul uses here, this whole concept of deception, sin deceived me and through it killed me, I mean, you can't help but think back to the experience in the garden. It's exactly what happened in the garden of Eden that sin tricked or deceived Adam and Eve, and it killed them. They died spiritually. They were separated from God. And so that's, you know, from the original fall of man to sin to this day, and your battle with sin this afternoon, it all comes down to are you going to get deceived? Are you going to get tricked one more time? Again, notice, and this is Paul's point here, the law is not to blame for sin or the death it brings. He doesn't say the law deceived me and through it killed me. No, he says sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment or through the law, deceived me and through it killed me. In other words, the law does not cause us to sin or to die. It merely exposes our sin and condemns us for our sin. John Stott says it well. He said the law is not sinful, nor is it responsible for sin. Instead, it is sin itself, our sinful nature, which uses the law to cause us to sin and so to die. The law is exonerated. Sin is to blame. And then finally, let's see how the law proves how bad sin is. Verse 12, so then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Just because the law reveals and arouses, stirs up, condemns sin, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the law. The law is just doing exactly what God designed the law to do. It was the law was given by a holy, righteous, good God. It is a perfect reflection of his will for his people. And so to find fault with the law would be to find fault with God himself. In other words, you can't blame God for your sin. You can't say, well, God, if, you know, this is all your fault. If you hadn't made all these laws, I wouldn't have broken them, and I wouldn't be on my way to hell. You may have not said that, but sometimes we, that's where we go in our hearts and our minds. It'd be like um, a man who was caught red-handed in the act of murder. He's arrested, he's brought to trial, he's found guilty, and he's sentenced to death. Now we know that guy cannot blame the law for receiving the death penalty. Granted, it's the law that Convicted him and sentenced him, but he has no one else to blame but himself. He's the one who committed the crime. Therefore, Paul says, verse 13, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Did the law doom me to death? Then, no, perish the thought. The law killed no one, sin did it. Sin is the real culprit. The villain of our story, Paul's story, our story is sin. I don't know if you follow the news much, but I happened to read a quick interview that ABC News had with President Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, who said that Trump knew that the hush payments were wrong. And this is what he said this was the line that jumped out at me I will not be the villain of his story. And that's what's going on in this passage. Paul would not let the law be the villain of his story or our story. The law is not the bad guy. Sin is. And that's what he says. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. His point is simply this. That sin is so exceedingly evil, it kidnaps God's good law and takes it hostage and uses it against us to deceive us and defile us and destroy us and damn our soul to hell. And in light of that, surely nothing should be feared and hated more than sin. People will never understand how desperately they need a Savior until they realize how despicable, despicably sinful they are. That's why Jesus, when he confronted, uh, or I shouldn't say confronted, responded to the rich young ruler who ran up to him and said, Lord, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to go to heaven? I've kept all the law. I've done this and I've done this and done this and. He would never committed adultery. He always honored his parents, and um, you know he he uh, he never robbed anyone. But then Jesus said, "Okay, fine, sell everything that you have and come follow me." And he and he wouldn't do it. Why? Because he was covetous. There was greed in his heart, and so he may have looked good on the outside, but Jesus pressed the button on what was going on the inside, and so Jesus preached the law to the rich young ruler before he presented himself as the solution. And I think we need to learn how to do that as we're presenting the gospel to others. We need to put up the Ten Commandments and say, hey, look, how you doing with keeping these things? And, and, and the reason why you're not keeping these things is because you can't keep these things and, and that's why you need Jesus. Jesus came. I think Great Comfort's ministry, The Way of the Master, is kind of probably the most well-known ministry in our day and age or in our generation that, that promotes the preaching of the law in preparation for the preaching of the gospel. And ultimately, the law was designed to lead us to Christ. Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. Listen, let's all admit this, okay? Before we were saved, before we became Christians... We were blissfully unaware of the depth of our sin, for the most part. But now that we are Christians, we have this increasing awareness of how wretchedly sinful we are. We're going to see, in in the weeks to come, Paul himself saying, Oh, wretched man that I am. And the more we grow in Christ, and the closer we get to Christ, the more painfully aware we become of the disgusting, defiling deceptive, destructive, damning nature of sin. And so, as I close, let me beseech you, if I could borrow the words of the Puritans, this is, again, Ralph Venning. At the end of his book, he says, whoever you are who read this, Pause a little and consider what is said, for what is said of sin is to be considered by the sinner and is meant of your and my sin. Shall I not plead for God and your soul and entreat you to be on God's side and to depart from the tents of wickedness? Poor soul, can you find it in your heart to hug and embrace such a monster as sin? Will you love that which hates God and which God hates? God forbid, will you join yourself to that which is nothing but contrary to God and all that is good? Oh, say to this idol, this devil, get hence, what have I to do with you, you sorcerer, you full of all malignity and mischief, you child, ye father of the devil, you who are the founder of hell, an enemy to all righteousness, who ceases not to pervert the right ways of the Lord and to reproach the living God, away Away, shall I be seduced by you to grieve the God of all my joy, to displease the God of all my comfort, to vex the God of all my contentment, to do evil against a good God by whom I live, move, and have my being? Oh no. I think that's the practical application of considering the sinfulness of sin. Why would I, how could I ever do it again? Let's pray. Father, while it's hard to consider this subject of sin, especially since it's the worst and greatest evil that we could possibly think about or talk about, But, Lord, it's a great reminder that if sin is the worst and greatest of evils, then that makes Christ the best and greatest of saviors. And, Lord, as we celebrate the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, this season, Lord, may it remind us of our sin, not in a way to discourage us or make us sad or guilty, but thankful that you provided a way for us to be delivered from this monster that seeks to control our lives. And Lord, I would pray specifically for myself because it's easy to decry sin and denounce sin from behind a pulpit, but it's much harder to deal with sin in my own heart, outside the pulpit. And so, Lord, would you work in my heart, work in all of our hearts to grant us grace to mortify sin, to kill sin in our lives before it kills us. And Lord, may we, you just grant us grace to respond to this heavy subject this challenging topic this morning with great joy because we have the hope of Christ who is the hope of Christmas. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.